Yeah, just imagine some epic music going on in the background, and you'll get uh, you'll get the gist of it. Uh, man, I am so incredibly grateful that uh, that this is happening. <laughs> uh, man, so uh, so encouraged for all of you giving time on a weekend, coming back today. Uh, I uh, I want to echo what Abram said. It, it feels like the Lord's doing something uh, in our midst. Uh, and, and I think that the evil one's not happy about it because um, not only do we have uh, some, some issues with technology, but we've heard of three flat tires in the last, uh, in the last 12 hours uh, from one of our speakers and one of our tech guys. And so uh, the enemy's not, not too pleased with what's going on here. Um, but uh, we're, we're confident that the Lord is doing something pretty cool uh, in our midst. Uh, so what I hope that you're seeing so far And what I hope that you'll see throughout the rest of our time uh, at this conference today is that in order for us to really be a sending church, we all need to be on the same page. We all need to have the convictions and the passions about what it takes to reach the world. Uh, It's really easy at a conference like this to begin hearing things through the lens of, man, if I'm not going, then... What do I have to offer? Uh, maybe, maybe you feel guilty when you hear things like that. Maybe you, you, you hear us say, oh, it's not a second class to be a sender, but then you get the feeling like maybe we actually think that it is. Uh, that happens at conferences like this. And what we hope that you see through this conference, what the, the lens that we want you to hear this through is to be a passionate sending church We don't just need those that are going to have a deep understanding of God's heart for the world. We all need to have a deep understanding of God's heart for the world. We all need to have the biblical foundations. We all need to have the convictions. Otherwise, we're not ascending church, we're just a waving church, right? Where we say, hey, I'm glad you're going. See you later. But man, to be ascending church, that we're all excited, we're all passionate, we're all sacrificing, we're all making margin in our life to make this happen. Paul Washer, a pastor, once said it this way, whether you go down into the well or you hold the rope, the rope is going to bore scars into your hands. If you're holding the rope as you go down into the well, those that go, or you're the one handing, standing at the at the top, not going down to the well holding the rope, both of us are going to have scars etched into our hands. And that's what we want this conference to do within us. We want to see a whole community of churches, uh, those, you know, there's churches all around this city, around this state that we're talking with about partnership, about what this can all uh, what this can all look like. So that's the lens that we want, uh, want you to see with us. We want uh, all of us to think through how can we make margin in our lives so that those that go have everything that they need. Man, what an exciting uh, community that would, uh, that would be. So that's where we're going today. I want to take some time and dive deep into the Great Commission. All right, you heard Kevin talk about one of the Great Commission texts. You heard John talk about a couple of the Great Commission texts. And I want to take time to just set a biblical foundation for all of us of what really did God ask us to do? What did God send us out into the world as a church, out of community, like Kevin talked about, uh, as we move forward? Kevin and John set such an amazing foundation uh, for us that I get a chance to build on. So let me pray for us as, uh, as we get ready to jump in. 
So, Father, we're grateful. We're so grateful for Jesus. All this is about you. This is, this is not new. This is not unique. This is not specialized. This is, this is your heart. And as a church and as, as churches that are gathered here, God, we want to be a part of that. So I pray that you'd open our hearts this morning, that you would allow each of us to hear what you would have for us and for our families and for our church. Would you allow us to lay the distractions that we came in with down at your feet? Would you allow us to hear your voice? God, if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. And if there's anything I've not even thought of, would you fill me with your words? Because it's only your words that will transform. And we want a transformed church as we continue to send. In Jesus' name, amen. So Dr. Ralph Winner, uh, when he was alive, was one of the foremost researchers and thinkers when it came to uh, missions uh, in the world. He was the guy that founded the Perspectives class. He's the guy that, that came up with the concept of unreached people groups. Just an incredible thinker. And he wrote an article uh, called Reconsecration to a Wartime Lifestyle. And in it, he looked at a museum that is in uh, Long Beach, California, uh, that is a converted cruise ship, the Queen Mary. Uh, and the Queen Mary was one of the greatest lug luxury cruise liners that the world had seen up until that point. But during World War II, it was converted into a troop transport vessel. And the museum is split into two parts. On the one side, you get to see what it would have been like in peacetime where there's just luxury all over the place with, these, with wealthy, wealthy patrons that are getting to enjoy a really cool vacation. On the other half of the ship, you got to see what it was like during, peace, or during wartime when it was a troop vessel. So on one side of the ship, you go into the mess hall and you get to see these, these elaborate place settings with white tablecloths and 15 different plates and saucers. I don't know what each of those would be used for, um, but uh, just a luxurious fine dining experience. But on the other side, you go into the mess hall and you see place settings with just this metal tray with an indentations for food and a spork. In peacetime, you go over here and you get to see the suites that the, that the patrons would sleep in, these luxurious rooms, and it could carry 3,000 people at that time. But when it's converted to a warship, it could hold 15,000 troops, and they were sleeping in bunk rooms six high. And Winner's point in this, uh, in this article is to describe the difference between how we live in wartime and how we live in peacetime. And he used it as an example for the Great Commission. To drive home the point that whether we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, we're living in wartime. There is a battle raging for this world and for the souls of men and women. Now Jesus struck the final blow. Victory has been won. Satan is defeated. However, the battle's not over. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and it is coming to this world, but Satan is doing everything he can to hold his strongholds, to hold the land that he still has sway over. And that's why a third of the world still has no access 
to the message of Jesus. And the, to hear the Great Commission through the lens of either wartime or peacetime makes a huge difference. Because in peacetime, where we would sacrifice for a common war effort, our sacrifice begins to give way to comfort and ease and luxury. But when we're in wartime, and we all know it, everybody is rallied together to be a part of the effort. And if you were around during World War II, you saw this, right? You didn't eat meat on Fridays so that it could go over. We didn't have copper pennies anymore because all the copper was needed to be able to go over to the war effort. People that were making cars started making tanks. Everyone had to be mobilized because we had a common enemy and we had a common mission. But so often in the church, we forget that we're actually at war. And as we talk about the Great Commission today, I want us to try to hear it afresh because these are some texts that we've heard so many times before. But my hope for us is we begin to hear it through the lens of a wartime lifestyle because the reality is when our commander-in-chief, or as Kevin McKee likes to say it, our leader king, Jesus, stood on that mountain to give his final commands— it wasn't, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot something. Let me give you one more, let me give you one more command. When he stood on that mountain, he was giving us our last orders. He was giving us his mission. He was giving us standing commands. And we call it the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission is not actually a term found in your Bible. Uh, it's over some passages that we added in later to break some things up. But the phrase Great Commission is not actually found in your Bible. And it's actually a fairly new term. Uh, Great Commission was first uh, written about in a book in 1892 by a guy named A.T. Pearson in a book called The Divine Enterprise of Mission. And he said, I will call these five texts the Great Commission texts. But somewhere around the way, uh, along the way, and you know, this is typically kind of how uh, we do things in the West. We're like, well, five's a lot, so let's we'll call Matthew 28 the Great Commission text. So that way, there's only one verse on missions. There's also only one verse on snake handling. I don't know if I'm called to be a snake handler, so maybe I'm not called to be a part of this mission effort. But the reality is the Great Commission was not a verse. It was not a passage. It was a treatise. It was a mission statement. It was a summary of everything that Jesus had talked about. And there are five Great Commission texts, as A.T. Pearson calls them, one in each of the Gospels and one in Acts, that he said these will be the texts that will define the Great Commission. One we've heard um, t uh, this weekend already is in Matthew 28. It says, in starting in verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Mark wrote this one in, in Mark 16 15. He said, he, he said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Luke's account says it this way in chapter 24, verse 46. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
John, you heard uh, Kevin talk about this. John's is, peace be with you as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And you heard John talk about Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There are five great commission texts that took place at five distinct times in five distinct places to five distinct groups of people over a a time period of 40 days. After Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days on earth continuing to teach, but it wasn't, hey, let me talk about all the things that I forgot to talk about before I died. It's, let me make sure you get this because this is what everything hinges on. So today, when I say the phrase Great Commission, I'm not talking about a text. I'm not talking about a passage. I'm talking about a rallying cry for the church. I'm talking about an idea so potent and so powerful that it has the potential to unify and mobilize billions of followers of Jesus in this world to take the message of Jesus to the 3.2 billion people that have no access to it. When I say the phrase Great Commission, I'm talking about something that Jesus left that he anticipated would permeate everything that we do. Because God's a missionary God. So we don't have time to go through all of the things uh, that, that he said. We don't have time to dive deep, but I want to take a little bit of time to go through three of these texts so that we can see some of the things that Jesus is, uh, is pulling out. So the first Great Commission conversation that I want to look at is out of Luke. Uh, and what I want us to see is that the Great Commission is the summary of the Old Testament. That's a bold statement. The Great Commission is the summary of the Old Testament. Now, it's getting rarer and rarer today to, have, to find people who have actually read through the whole Bible because when we do the Bible reading plans, if it's actually in order, um, it's about Leviticus 13 or 14 where we're just like, I give up, let's go to John, right? So sometimes we don't fully know what the Old Testament's talking about, but it's pretty cool. Jesus gave us his summary. So listen again to Luke 24, starting in verse 44 this time. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's how the Hebrews would talk about, this is the, this is the Old Testament, this is the text, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He says, this is what was written about me. And then he opened their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. It'd be pretty cool to be in a Bible study with Jesus. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he told them this is what was written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is what was written. The Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations. That's how Jesus summarized the Old Testament. Now I want to put this text into some, uh, into some context to us because it gives us, some, uh, gives us some pretty cool insight into what's going on, right? So this is kind of happening right around this whole, the famous road to Emmaus story, right? So two disciples are walking from Jerusalem, the seven mile journey back to Emmaus, and they are just, they're depressed and they're dejected. They just spent three years of their life walking with a man that they thought was the Messiah, And they had a very clear understanding of what that was supposed to look like. 
For them, it meant that Jesus is going to come in and be our political ruler, dethrone the Romans and all of our enemies, and put Israel back on the map as the greatest superpower the world had ever seen. And because they followed him to the end, man, they were going to be the ones that were in his courts. They were going to be the ones that had all blessings, all favor, all of this stuff. That's what they were expecting, and that guy just died. Now, at this point, they don't know he's back from the dead yet. So they're walking along the road, their heads are down, they're kicking a can or you know rocks or whatever they're kicking on that seven mile journey and Jesus shows up next to them but they don't know it's Jesus yet and he's like hey guys what you talking about and they're like hey are you the only one that doesn't know what just happened and so they and and Jesus is like what happened so they start telling them all this stuff and there's this messiah we thought this guy he was a prophet we thought he'd be a messiah and but then he but then he died and then they say this phrase that really reveals their hearts. And I would imagine this is where a lot of us probably are in a lot of, in a lot of our wanderings. They said, but we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. There's so much irony in that statement, isn't there? We had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. What did they mean? They meant, man, he was our golden ticket. We get to be back on top of the world. Our enemies, all suffering, all persecution will be out the door. Maybe you find yourself there sometimes. Man, but I had hoped Jesus would have given me the life that I wanted. But we had hoped that my grandmother would have survived cancer. But we had hoped that our marriage could have survived. But we had hoped that Jesus would be this for us. And the ironic thing is so often the things that we had hoped on Jesus, in the grand scheme of things, they're really small. Not to downplay any of those things that we hope for Jesus, But even for these guys, we had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. It's pretty small in the scope of the world. I wonder what you're here today hoping Jesus would do with your eyes down on the situations that are in front of you. And I think what Jesus would have us do this morning is lift our eyes. And this is how Jesus uh, says it to them. I hope I I never have to... uh, hear this from from Jesus. He says, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. I love this. Jesus is so full of grace and mercy, but sometimes you just need to say, you missed it. You missed it. You had the scriptures. You just thought they were about you. You had the scriptures. You just thought they were there to give you what you wanted, what you had interpreted. You thought I was just here to redeem Israel? It's too small. I'm here to redeem the world. So these two guys, they turn around uh, and they run back to Jerusalem. 
from Emmaus. And it's nighttime at this time. And that was a dangerous road for them to walk because of robbers. They're like, we got to go find everybody and tell them. Because when he was laying those things out for us, our heart burned within us. So they run back to Jerusalem. They gather the other guys. And that's when we hear the text that we read before, that Jesus comes before them. And he says, let me, let me reinterpret this for you. You missed it. Yeah, I came for you. Yeah, I came for your nation. Too small. I came for the world. And then he gives us that great commission text that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Man, to be a fly on the wall, right? To have Jesus sit there and unveil for them the scriptures. But you know what? I think those two disciples on the road to Emmaus would have rather said, man, I wish I could be in that room at Lift's End. Because we not only have the Holy Spirit living within us that will reveal and bring to mind all things that Jesus said, but we've got the New Testament that is set and solid and will show us what to live for. And we get to be a fly on that wall because we have the text of Scripture and the Spirit to interpret it for us. The summary of the Old Testament, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. The next thing I want us to look at, I want to jump to Matthew. There's so much we could continue to go through in Luke, but I want to jump to Matthew's account. We saw that the Great Commission is the summary of the Old Testament. I want us to see now that the Great Commission is the purpose of the church. Not just a church, not just this church, the church. The Great Commission is the purpose of the church. So in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, it says this, And the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love how the scriptures give us those little things to, you know, to, to relate a little bit to us. Because uh, we can probably find ourselves at times in both of those spots. Sometimes I'm worshipping, sometimes I'm doubting. And Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, as the greatest commander-in-chief that the world had ever seen, gives us his last orders to this scared, confused group of 11 dudes on the side of a mountain. His assumption, we're at war. And they knew that. And this moment on the mountain was a turning point in history. Two incredible things happened in that 40-day period. The death of Jesus and his resurrection created a new structure. We call it the church. Structure might not be the best word for it, but that's the best one I could find there. Created the church. It had never existed before. And it's a group of people from every background, every skin color, every nationality, every socioeconomic status, every language in the world. The only thing that we have to have in common is allegiance to King Jesus. His death created the structure. His words gave the structure purpose. 
So often, and I said this quote last night, so often the church wants to figure out our mission, right? It's not, not, not bashing mission statements. They're good, they're helpful, they're unifying. But it's not up to the church to find her own mission. Jesus gives it to her. And we call it the Great Commission. His death created the structure. His words gave the structure purpose. And these are marching orders from our commander-in-chief. And if you were a part of the military, you know that when orders come, they stand until one of three things happen. Either you finish, you die, or you get new orders. And these are the last standing orders that our commander-in-chief has given to this structure that he created called the church. The Great Commission is what Jesus has sent this church to do. The quote that I said last night, that John said it, said it too, the, the church doesn't have a mission in the world. The God of missions has a church in the world. The church is his strategy to accomplish his mission. So what exactly are these orders? So in the passage in Matthew, Jesus frames it for us using four statements that all include the word all. Uh, so it's a helpful way to kind of track through this. The first is uh, right there in the beginning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now this might seem like a strange statement to us, right? Like we're thinking, like, of course Jesus had all authority. But remember what these guys were coming in with, right? They had expectations on what Jesus would do. They had expectations on how he was going to establish his throne. They didn't expect him to die. They expected him to be a political ruler, Right, So they saw his authority. They saw that he could do all things. They saw that he had authority to forgive sins. They saw he had authority over demons. He saw his authority, but when he died, I think there was a little bit of a chink in their armor. Right, So he comes back and he says, guys, I had this the whole time. I told you three times I was going to die. You just couldn't think past your ambition. You couldn't think past your own life. You couldn't think past your idea that the scriptures were about you. So Jesus has to come back and say, hey, you saw my authority, but now know for certain I have all authority in heaven and on earth, even over death. So Jesus stands before them and he reframes their reality. And by saying all authority is mine, that's usually the type of phrase where he's like, okay, what I'm about to say is important, right? The one that just claimed all authority and now is about to make a statement. And he says this, there, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, our second all. Because of and on the basis of the authority that Jesus has, he gives them, catch this, a specific mission. He gives them a specific mission. The the commission of Jesus, like John said, is not just, hey, go make some disciples. The commission of Jesus is make disciples of all nations. And this passage is one of those places where our English translations sometimes betray us, right? Because when we hear that word nation, we begin to think country. Uh, You know, the the geopolitical nation states that, uh, that are around When Jesus said the word nation, he was not talking about countries. Uh, The word nation is better translated as ethne, where we get our word ethnicity. 
And rather than being like 292 geopolitical countries, there are some 16,000 to 21,000 ethnicities, depending on who you ask. And you've been hearing it all weekend. There are still 3,000 languages in this world with not even one translated word of Scripture. There are 3.2 billion people who don't just, they've just not ever heard of Jesus, but they don't have access to him. They can't wake up one day and walk 100 miles and meet someone who can tell them in their language that Jesus died for them. John said it so beautifully. We argue about the second coming and there's 3.2 billion people who not just haven't heard, but they don't have a chance to hear about the first coming. And Jesus gives us a specific mission. And in defining the success of this mission, we get to see the end in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. This is how success is defined. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne before the Lamb. This is intentional language. John's not looking out and saying, man, there's a lot of people here. He's saying there are some people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. The mission that Jesus is sending us on has a focus of ethnicity, not simply individuality. Now, there's a really helpful example in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Annie, I think that was the one you won uh, yesterday. Highly recommend that book by John Piper. But he gives us this analogy of two ships that at the same time begin to catch fire and they start sinking. One is much farther off the coast than the other. Now, imagine you're a part of the Coast Guard. And the, ca- the captain of the Coast Guard gets everybody together and, uh, and puts together a plan. And if you were to say, hey, I want you to save as many people from these ships as possible, go. Your strategy is pretty simple. Let's put all of our resources towards the closest ship. Because we're going to waste time and people are going to die if we bypass the first ship to go to the farther ship. So if the command is let's save as many people as possible, then we go all to the first ship and get as many people as we can. And then if there's time, we go to the second. But... If the commander of the Coast Guards gets you together and says, hey, I want you to save some from every ship, that completely changes the strategy. Either you bypass the first ship to make sure that you can get some from the second ship, or you split up your resources evenly so that you can get to both ships. And the reality is the commission that Jesus gave us is make disciples of all nations. But you heard John say it again last night, one out of every 1,800 followers of Jesus is going to the second ship. When you see someone carrying a big heavy log and there's 99 people on one side of the log and another person carrying on this side of the log and you're going to go help, where are you going to go? I think so often we just, we can't lift our heads up from, but we had hoped that Jesus would do this for me. And we miss the mission that he has saved us for. Man, and it's so easy to operate like the first, uh, like that first scenario, Right, I've had so many people talk to me. Man, there's so many people right here in Baton Rouge. Why do we spend so much time focusing on the world? Well, the simple answer is because that's what Jesus told us to do. 
But I think so often we again our language betrays us. That word, that phrase in the Old Testament, in the uh, in Matthew twenty-eight of make disciples of all nations. Uh, the way we translated it can be confusing because when we say make disciples in English, that's a complete sentence, subject verb. However, those two words in English are translating one word from the original language. We use two words because we don't have a proper English word for it. The closest we could get is to make something up. Maybe we could say, disciplize, or something like that. But instead, we say, make disciples, because disciples isn't a word. So what we then hear is, make disciples is the command, complete sentence. But in the original language, make disciples is an incomplete sentence. It's a verb without a subject. The Great Commission is incomplete without make disciples of all nations. But I still get that question all the time, man, why do we focus so much on the world? There's so much need right around us. And what I want us as a church to really get to the core of our being, we're sent to both ships. More and more and more, we need to lean into at our church that we need to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus and in the city. We need more of that. We need more people trusting Jesus, more people being discipled, more life change. We don't need to neglect this for this. We need to lean in harder here. But the second ship, if we're just looking logically, the second ship needs a lot more resources. Not because it's the easiest or the best or the funnest thing to do, but because that's what Jesus left us to do. Now, Greg, our next speaker, is going to go through unreached people groups and talking through what all that looks like. What is an unreached people group? Why is that important? So I don't want to spend the time right now having to dive into that, stealing some of his thunder. But what I want us, again, I'll repeat, to have solidified in the core of our church Got to prioritize both ships. Got to prioritize both ships. And it's not unique. So many people have, have, have told me over the years, man, the chapel is such a unique church. It shouldn't be. All we're trying to do is be faithful to the scriptures, to lay our lives on the line for the commission that our commander-in-chief gave us, that he saved us for. Now again, put a little, little pin in that. How are you hearing me? What I don't want you to hear is if you don't go, then you've missed it. If you're hearing that, that's the enemy trying to come in and cause dissension and shame and guilt. That's not how Jesus operates. What I want you to hear, what I want you to hear through this conference is God has put the chapel here to reach both ships. And there's not enough resources right now to accomplish that task. So we all need to buy in. We all need to have a part to play. This conference would not have happened if for the last several decades there were not people praying daily, weekly for the chapel to have a heart for the nations. They may never go. 
And the way that we are going to break down the strongholds and the barriers that are out there for all of our people that we're trying to send out is when we need to get on our knees. What if we were a church that when someone says, I want to go, they come to me and say, man, I'm really scared of having to raise support. And I'm like, no worries, I got 50 people that have been waiting to support somebody because everybody else is taken. That's not outside the realm of possibility. And we want to send 100 people to the hardest to reach places. We're also praying for 1,000 senders in the next 10 years. Everyone has a part to play. Pin out back to where we are. Third all that we have, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the how to match the who and the why. What do we do as we go to bring the message of Jesus to the world? What do we do as we go to bring the message of Jesus to this campus, to this city? We bring all that Jesus commanded, right? We teach the whole counsel of scripture because there's nothing better to build our lives on. Every word that Jesus has said, including this one, (laughs) make disciples of all nations, right? Our discipleship is incomplete without an understanding of God's heart for the world. Fourth all, And surely I am with you always, some translations say, all the days to the very end of the age. Man, this is the personal part. The one who has all authority has promised not just to go with us, but to be with us. He's the one that is going to accomplish this mission. It doesn't rest on how good we are. It doesn't rest on how qualified we are. It doesn't rest on how much Bible we know. It rests on us putting our life as a living sacrifice on the altar and saying, use me. Use me to the farthest corners of the world or use me to live on 10% of my income so that I can send some to the hardest parts. I don't know what it's going to be for you. Something amazing happened on that mountain the entire force of the mission of God flipped. For thousands of years, the only place in the world to come to the presence of Jesus was to come to the temple at Jerusalem. But Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit, and as he left, he sent the helper. He lives inside of us. You are now the temple. Everywhere you go, the presence of God goes with you. And a world that does not know Jesus doesn't need to come in a church, doesn't need to come in a temple. When you have coffee with them, they're in the presence of God because you are a mobile temple going to this world. And Jesus accomplished that. And as we send people around the world, as we send people into the city, the presence of Jesus is what we're sending. It's not about being qualified. You have God living inside of you. He promised to go with us. He promised to be with us. So the Great Commission is the summary of the Old Testament. The Great Commission is the purpose of the church. The last thing I want us to see is the Great Commission. Miss you guys would love to be there with you. It includes you. The Great Commission includes you. I love that hey, Kevin Temple spent family. time going in John 20. Man, we love and miss you guys. Um, would love to be there with you this, this whole thing. We didn't yep. compare yeah. texts and all of that. But right out of John 20, again, starting in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how is that a great commission text? doesn't say nations. doesn't say the world. Right? I love Kevin's question. How was Jesus 
sent. I wrote down a couple things to, to add to the things that he said. He was sent from heaven to earth, from comfort to pain, from perfection to sacrifice. He was sent to those who were different from him, to those who might hate him, to those who didn't want him. He was sent for redemption, for forgiveness, for salvation, for reconciliation. Jesus was sent from what was comfortable and known to bring life to a world that needed it. And he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You're sent. You're sent. God has given us his spirit. He's invited us into his mission. And he has sent you into the world. He sent you to your workplace. He sent you to your classroom. He sent you to your neighborhood. For some of you, he will send you where you don't currently live. For others, he will send you where the gospel doesn't yet live. And we say at the chapel, everyone is sent, either where you live, where you don't live, or where the gospel doesn't live. What I hope sinks in is that all of us have a part in all three of those. Everyone is sent. Wherever you are, you are sent there as an ambassador for Jesus to represent him, to be the presence of God, to be the temple, to share Jesus, to see transformation, no matter what, wherever you are. But for some of you, it will be sent where you don't live. That's why we send church planners to Cincinnati. That's why we send church planners to Bloomington. That's why we want to raise up a generation of people that say, man, I'm an engineer. I could be an engineer anywhere. Let's go somewhere where there's more need, and we want to send you. For others, you're going to be sent where the gospel doesn't yet live, across culture, across language. But for those last two categories, if you are sent where you are and you're not ever going to leave this geography, you have a part to play in those that are sent where they don't live and where the gospel doesn't live. And the biggest thing that we hope that you take away from this conference is what part are you going to play? What part are you going to play? For some of you, God is calling you to be one of those people that puts down their life, leaves comfort, leaves familiar, leaves family to take the gospel where it's never been before. That's why we have John here. That's why we have Greg here so that you can learn what it looks like to, to go in different contexts. Encourage you, if you're in that spot, to go to John and Greg's session so you can learn more about that. Some of you, your next step is, man, I gotta learn more about all this. We're only scratching the surface on how we can leverage our lives to be a part of the Great Commission. And I wanna have another plug for the Perspectives class. Maybe your next step is, man, I need to take a, a break from this Bible study or this class or this, this league or whatever it is so that I can take 15 weeks to allow God to continue to speak to my heart and show me what he has for me. Take it as a community group. Take it as a family. But maybe that's your next step. And again, we've got a $25 discount if you sign up by the end of tomorrow. Uh, for that class. But if God's doing something in you, man, what a great next step. For some of you that you know you aren't supposed to be one of the ones to go, but you also know that you are sent just as much as everyone 
else. Maybe your next step is to figure out how to leverage your prayers, how to leverage your finances, how to leverage your time, how to leverage your kids. for the sake of the gospel going to the last remaining places in this world. Now what we hope to see here at the chapel and what we hope to do in partnership with other churches that are representing here here is to see an entire community of churches mobilized into the mission of God. We're dreaming of a place where going overseas isn't weird. It's celebrated. We're dreaming of a place where it really is not difficult to raise support because we're all figuring out how to leverage every part of our lives to see this mission accomplished because it's what Jesus gave us. We're dreaming of a network of communities sending hundreds of people around the world. We're dreaming of a great commission army because in the grand scheme of things, 3,000 languages isn't that much. And we know that the one who has all authority is with us. He's sending us. And he is the one who will execute his mission. So what's God stirring in you? What is your next step? Not to join the chapel... but to join God in what he is doing around this world. How many more prayers can we leverage? How many more dollars can we leverage? How many more lives can we leverage? Because the gospel is worth it. So I'm going to pray for you as God continues to stir and in your hearts, and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll transition to what's next. So, Father, we are grateful for Jesus. I pray that by your Spirit, you would come now and speak. I pray now that you would come and give direction. I pray that you'd give conviction. I pray that you'd give passion. pray that you would give us something to write down on a sheet of paper so that we can go back in 10 years and know yeah it was that day November 6th when I realized that no matter where I was no matter who I am no matter what I've done no matter what's been done to me God wants to use me in the greatest mission and the greatest story that's ever been told So God, leverage our lives, spend our lives, spend our resources, spend our, spend our families, spend our energies, spend our talents, spend our skills, spend our careers, spend our homes, because they're yours anyway. Only let us do it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So God, use this, this humble people, use this church, use the churches that are represented here, 
Not so that we can have any recognition or any credit, but so that you get all the glory in every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. In Jesus' name, amen.